The New Testament reading is 1 Peter 4, 12-19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will it be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and a sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word of the Lord. I want to say thanks to you guys uh, that joined us last week at the rescue mission for worship. Um, that has become one of the things that I really look forward to, and, and by the turnout, it seems like you do too. Um, but I mentioned that because last week we took a break from our series that we've been going through on First Peter, um, since we had a crowd of people that weren't a part of that series, and we're picking back up with that this morning. And so if you're new here or joining us for the first time, I think it's it just to, to briefly recap, Peter is um, really a, a weak man and a frail man in many ways who has seen his own sin and has met Jesus, or rather Jesus has met him in the midst of it and has forgiven him and restored him and called him um, to be one who is proclaiming the goodness of Jesus in the world. And so Peter now writes this letter to these really new Christians, uh, many of whom are, are Gentile converts who are on the verge of being, or already are being persecuted in many ways for what they believe. And so he wants to cement their minds. This is the reason this letter is good for us. He wants to cement their minds in what is actually true about them, no matter what is happening around them. And so we heard some of those words in the assurance of grace that they have been born again to a living hope that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. That they were once not a people, but now they are a people. That they are actually God's people. That they are a royal nation. That they are a royal priesthood. That they are a holy nation. They are a people for God's own possession. He keeps telling them these things so that they might know how to respond to the world around them and the circumstances that the world brings at them, not out of bitterness or fear or anger or resentment or violence or any of those things, but out of the status they now have in Jesus. And I think it's fair to say that we need to hear that too. And the beauty of preaching through um, books of the Bible is sometimes we get to portions that I'll be honest, I may not want, I don't want to talk about suffering. Sorry. You may not want to come in this morning and talk about suffering. But in God's wisdom this morning, we're talking about suffering because what Peter is pointing out 
is the way that we suffer and endure trials is actually one of the beacons of hope to the world um, that points to Jesus, that points to his goodness. Some of that's mysterious, and some of that I don't fully understand. And so we're going to listen to God's word this morning and see um, what we can learn about that. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is truth. And in your love, you give it to us this morning, uh, that you really do love us. You want us to know the truth. And we run from the truth, and we hide from it. Um, We listen to other voices over and above your voice, but this morning we stop and we pause and we say to you once again, speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. And so help us this morning to truly listen to you. Um, Help us to hear these words. And I pray that you would root us and ground us in the love of Jesus so that when trials do come and suffering comes, that you might actually by your spirit um, give us the ability to rejoice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a, a few years ago, maybe four, five, six years ago, I'm not quite sure um, when I started noticing this thing happen. But any, it was around the time when almost, I guess the majority or almost all of the population, to some degree, was on some form of social media. That people started, you know, it wasn't just for college kids anymore on Facebook. It was actually like, your grandma, you know, was on there too. Uh, it was uncomfortable, right? And the, people started not really knowing what do we do with this new thing where we get to say what we want to the world. And what you would find is that often people would just respond in the moment uh, to whatever situation they were in via whatever form of social media they chose. And, and we still do this. And so you would find that you get an insight into how people feel about some of the hardships and frustrations of life. Things like this. Ah, I cannot believe the Wi-Fi is down in the Starbucks, right? Or, you know, something like this. Somebody's traveling on an airplane, and you may have done this, uh, so, you know, I'm not trying to single you out. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. It, like, takes a picture of, like, how much space they have in their seat and you're like forgetting the fact that like as you fly across the country people used to do that in wagons and like half their family died on the way and you're doing it in a number of hours and you're like man but it's really cramped right and so we kind of laugh at those things and we laugh at ourselves and there was this phrase that was kind of developed out of that that people would throw back at people who made these kind of comments that this is a first world problem right that um, people, there's people in other parts of the world, in third world countries, who would die to have a cramped seat or to be sitting in a Starbucks. And it kind of reveals the fact that we can become so comfortable with the way that we are accustomed to living that even the smallest, silliest little bump in the road can cause us to throw up our hands and complain. I know that that's true, because I do it too. And the deeper truth is that for many of us, what we've done is we've wanted to carefully plan and orchestrate our lives in such a way that maybe one of the main goals that we have is that if we do this carefully enough, we can avoid trials 
and we can avoid suffering. If we do it carefully enough, if we make the right moves, if we make the right decisions at the right time, then maybe what will happen is that my life will go sort of the way that I envision it going, and it will be smooth. Well, I think one of the shocking things about the Bible and one of the shocking things about Christianity in general, which I also think uh, the more I meditate on it, is that it is absolutely beautiful, is that it is honest with you that that is not how your life is going to go. That it's honest with each of us that there are going to be trials and there is going to be suffering in your life. It is honest about that and it's honest. It's also honest about this, and this is something Peter's been talking about the whole time, that those things that we are assured that we will encounter in some form or fashion do not take away or negate or diminish this larger thing that God has accomplished through his son Jesus. Therefore, we might, even in the midst of things that are hard and things that we would never have asked for, that we have this undercurrent and a reason for rejoicing. That's a hard thing. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I want to look at it really just in the way that Peter sets this up in the first two verses is that he says, do not be surprised. And then he says, but rejoice. And I want to think for a minute about how we can actually comprehend even thinking about doing that, right? And what that might look like for us. And so this first part he talks about, it says, he starts this verse. And this is, I, I, would, I would venture to wager or to guess that no one in this room has this verse cross-stitched and hanging in the hallway of your home. Do not be surprised, beloved, when the fiery trial comes upon you as if something strange is happening to you. I love that last part. As if this is bizarre, this is strange, because what Peter is saying is that what you're encountering is actually not strange at all. And so I'm telling you at the beginning, do not be surprised. I want you to not be taken off guard when a fiery trial comes upon you. Why? Because it cannot mean, based on what we've already learned, it cannot mean it is because God has abandoned you or God is even punishing you because he's fully punished the the wages of your sin in the death of his son. It cannot mean that he um, doesn't love you anymore. It cannot mean any of those things. He's already cemented our mind and what God now thinks of us as his children through the work of his Jesus. So do not be surprised by this. What it simply means is this, is that the holy and just and sovereign God, whose thoughts are not your thoughts and whose ways are not your ways and who has come near to you in love, is choosing to work in a way that you don't understand. He is choosing, is he, is he free to do that? Absolutely, he's free to do that. Does it make him unjust to do that? Absolutely not. He is working in a way that you do not understand, and he's working in a way that may be foreign to you, and it may even be deeply uncomfortable to you. See, we're each living in this one little speck of this gigantic 
beautiful story that God himself is the author of. And it's a story where he takes the brokenness and the rebellion and the sin of us and of this world and through the work of his son Jesus that he is writing a story that takes all of these things and they somehow work to his glory. That he brings even the darkest things and he is working them into something that our minds could not possibly comprehend, scripture tells us. And this means simply this, and this is what Peter wants them to know. Don't, don't be surprised. It would be foolish for you to be surprised if your life takes a turn that you didn't plan for. Don't be surprised if that turn is something that you don't want. Don't be surprised if it's really hard. That you now can open yourself, because of what I've already told you at the beginning of this letter, you can open yourself up to the mystery of life because you are assured now that you have a God who deeply loves you and you can live boldly. And you can only do that if you know that your life is in the hands of a God who is good and who is powerful and who is just and whose knowledge and whose purpose are bigger than your own. So let me talk about this for a minute then. Is Peter talking about these, these fiery trials and this suffering <clears throat> in this passage is he's simply talking about suffering that comes in the form of persecution because you belong to Jesus. And I would say in this passage in particular, that's primarily what he is addressing. We've talked about this a lot, that he's talking to Christians who are getting ready to be persecuted because they're united with Jesus and they follow Jesus And Jesus himself, in the passage that um, we heard earlier, assures his disciples, as they love one another, the world will hate you. And so they shouldn't be surprised by that. He says it in verse 14, if you're insulted for my name, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. In verse 16, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his name. So, pri- so primarily, the focus of Peter is thinking about particularly the ways in which these people are going to suffer. Most of us, as far as I know, or as far as what I've seen, are not going to probably suffer in those same ways. And so, how does this apply to to us? Well, the way that Peter talks about how we encounter trials and suffering and how we respond to them is fully in accord with the way the rest of Scripture talks about trials and suffering. And so you go to the brother of Jesus, James, in the second verse of his letter, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Or you go um, to Paul in Romans chapter 5 in, in, in verse 3, and he said, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Or we go back to the Old Testament and we think about David in Psalm 51 who says these amazing words, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. That's not how modern minds think. Or we think about Joseph, who if anybody had a reason to think that God didn't love him anymore and had abandoned him, it was this man who was sold by his brothers into slavery and was basically abandoned for 20 years. And when they show back up, what he says to them are these amazing words that you meant this for evil. 
But wonder of wonders, God meant this thing for good. He meant it for good. And so what Peter and the rest of scripture is teaching us when it comes to this idea of trials and suffering is one of the things that I think that just needs to be um, drilled into our brains. Don't be surprised. You have no reason to be surprised. As if something strange is happening to you that has not happened to other people who belong to Jesus. We could look all through scripture and see examples of that. There's a certain, I think that there is a, I'm learning this in my life, that there is a certain relief and there is a certain freedom that comes with accepting the fact that trials and suffering are going to happen in my life in ways that I never would have imagined and I wouldn't have planned. And there's a certain freedom that in that knowing that I have a God who has loved me so well that I can actually even trust him with those things. I don't understand him. I don't know how he takes something that um, we don't want or is, is, is not even good and works it for good. But I know that he can because we've seen him do it over and over and over again. And the alternative to that is, is really depressing because the alternative to that is actually just to live sort of a naively optimistic life based upon this picture of your life that you're trying to massage into reality. It's a way of life that literally says, as many people do, I will carefully plan these things in this way so that my life will go this way and I won't be surprised. And the wisdom of scripture comes to you and says, don't be surprised. If that doesn't happen, I listened. Um, I listened to an interview this week with a, with an author, a British author, and I guess you would call him like a moral philosopher named Alain de Botton. I think it's how you say his name. Um, not a believer, but has written. It, you would have heard of him, or maybe even read an article that he wrote last year in the New York Times. It was the most read article in the New York Times in 2017 like by a long shot. And you think of all the things that happened in the world in 2017, this article was read more than any other by a long shot. You know what it was called? Does anybody know? No. Uh, why you always marry the wrong person. And, what, and so in his interview, and you could go back and read that article, it's actually God has given him a lot of wisdom and a lot of grace in this concept of love. And in, in, in this interview, he basically says that one of the reasons that so many marriages fall apart is because people are surprised by conflict and they're surprised by trial and they're surprised by suffering. And so he says, everyone who works really hard to kind of go, um, I'm going to find the perfect match. I'm going to find the perfect person. And in that, what I think is that things will always go smoothly, which is not true for anybody or for any relationship, or for any marriage. And it's not even what he says, and I think this agrees with scripture, it's not even ideal. Because the beauty of having another person who is unlike you is they actually begin to shape you through conflict and through trials to be somebody more beautiful than you were before. And so he says, um, one of the first questions you should ask on a date is not all the ways in which we're alike. He should say, here's how I'm crazy. How are you crazy? Right, I, I like that um, because he, we're all crazy, right? And it's it's got to be crazy, and so you take that into this situation, and it's basically it's the same thing. 
It's we try really hard to avoid these things instead of simply embracing what Scripture tells us is actually true. That there will be conflict, and there will be suffering, and there will be trial, and it actually will make you more beautiful. Because this is actually what God does. This is what he's in the business of doing. This is what he masters in. And we have to not be surprised by it. So maybe you ask the question then, well, then why, would he, why does he work that way? All right, and then we're, when, we, when we ask that question, we're sort of teetering on sort of thin ice because we can't fully answer that question. There's limitations to what I can know. And if we try to answer that question for somebody else, be very wary of doing that. If somebody else is suffering or going through a trial and you have the perfect answer for why they're going through that, um, I would hesitate there and pull back. There's wisdom in the scripture that says mourn with those who mourn, right? Not explain to them every reason why they might be mourning. But Peter does give us, and this is in line with every other passage that I've mentioned before and many other in the New Testament and the Old Testament that says why these trials come upon us. In verse 12, he says they come. Do not be surprised, beloved. He starts all of his hard passages with that word, reminding them you are beloved. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you, to test you. And now, that's a word that immediately, okay, we're using all these words this morning that everyone hates, right? Trials, fiery trials, suffering, testing. Um, can we leave now? Like, do we have to keep talking about the Testing, when we think of testing, is we think of um, sitting down, um, studying really hard, being examined, and if we pass the test, we move to the next level because we have, we have been proven worthy, one who is beloved is already worthy. One who belongs to Jesus is never tested to see like, whether or not you meet the standard so that God will accept you. God accepts you based upon the blood of his son and his resurrection, um, period. So what he means is these fiery trials then come to those who are already beloved and who already belong to Jesus, who are Christians. Why? To test them. Why? For their sake. So that they might see things about themselves and what they love and what they trust and what they're clinging to that they would never see any other way. And you've all experienced that to some degree or another in your life, I'm sure. What Peter's saying is that this is actually God's grace and it's his mercy to bring these particular types of fires into our lives in order to bring us to the point where we see how inadequate all the other things we were formerly trusting in actually are. Don't be surprised, he said, when trials and suffering come. As Christians, Jesus himself promised both. He promised them to his followers. So if we can't choose for this not to happen, can we at least choose how we respond to it? Yes, we can. We cannot choose whether or not trials will come, but we can choose how we respond. And how are we to respond? Peter says in verse 13 that we are to rejoice. That we are even to rejoice in our suffering. And I want to pause there for a second because... Some of us might, might hear that, and we've experienced particular types of suffering, and immediately we want to roll our eyes 
because what we think that this sounds sort of naive or glib, right? Like, I just got this diagnosis and praise Jesus, right? Glory. No, that's not what he's saying. Because the Bible, on the other hand, is full of lament and full of tears and full of grieving and full of mourning. And you even think of the man who's writing this letter on the worst day of his life when he denied Jesus. You know what his response was? It wasn't wonderful. I rejoice. It was that he wept bitterly. That he wept bitterly. Or you think of Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's facing what would be the worst suffering that has ever been known to man. That Jesus is grieved in his spirit, but in his grief, there is an undercurrent of rejoicing that God's will is being accomplished in ways that are far beyond what we understand. But we have the benefit of looking back to see what what those benefits are. There are salvation. And so Peter says in a smaller form, the same is true for you and I, that, that Christ's story, as we become Christians, that his story becomes our story. And he says this phrase uh, that I cannot fully wrap my mind around, but it's affirmed in, the, in other places in the New Testament that we now share in the sufferings of Christ. That we get to participate in that. That our suffering is sharing in the, in the suffering of Christ and, and, and that just as good was brought through his suffering, and I think we could agree that it was good that was brought out of his suffering. And God's glory was brought through his suffering that even our sufferings and our crosses will also end in resurrections. They will. I read a while back um, a man who is a a Christian writer, a Christian philosopher. Most of his books that I've read, I didn't understand. He's very smart. And, um, but this one I got because it wasn't a work of philosophy. It was called Lament for a Son. Nicholas Walterstorff, um, when his son, who he dearly loved, was 25, died in a climbing accident in Europe. And this philosopher, this man who thought, he was a Christian philosopher, thought of all these huge concepts of God and who God is, and what this all means, and the big questions of life was reduced to nothing at the death of his son. And he wrote um, a series of just basically pouring out his heart. And that was later published. And in that, he says this. He said, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into God's heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God and great mystery. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us. Through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering God shares it. And there's wisdom there in stopping short of trying to explain every bit of our trial and our suffering because it will not always be explained to us in a way that we desire it to be explained to us in this life. But we know this, that God himself is unlike any other God because he is a God who has come down 
and suffered with us. He's allowed the suffering of our world to enter into his heart. That he weeps and he wept. That he, he doesn't, it, which means it doesn't mean that the pain that we feel isn't real. It doesn't mean that it won't cause us to deeply examine ourselves and even at times to doubt. But for those of us who understand the nature of trial, and we even listen to the words written here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we should expect it and not be surprised, then it means we will ultimately rejoice even in the most difficult things that happen to us because we know that there is a God who is so good that he is working something far beyond what we could ever ask or think. It is what he does. It is how he works. I want to give you two examples of where I've witnessed this. And one is through somebody that I know, and the other is through somebody in history. And the person that I know is, I was, many of you, I've I've told stories before, I was a campus minister for about 12 years. And when I was at Furman, I had a girl there who was um, just lovely, um, full of life, um, had been raised in, in the church, understood the gospel, um, her name is Perrin, and she went in, one, when she was in college, she went in uh, to the emergency room one night because she was just having severe back pain, and that back pain, it was revealed, what, the source of it was she had tumors just all throughout her spine. And so over the next couple of years, um, I got to meet with her a lot during that time and listen um, to her a lot, and it was beautiful to hear I mean, honesty and tears and grief can exist on the same face as joy, right? That what she, had, what she knew to be true beyond a shadow of a doubt, it was still there in the midst of something that nobody ever wants to face. And it became really um, a, a witness to the people around her of the hope that can only be found in Jesus. So much um, so to the point that she wrote, an editorial in the Washington that was printed in the Washington Post. And in it, she said this. She quoted C.S. Lewis, and she said, God, you've probably heard this quote before, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he speaks in our conscience, and he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And she ended her article by saying this, and I heard her say similar things many times. Cancer has been a turning point in my life that I never could have dreamed of, And I know that my life will never be the same. But despite the hard times and the multitude of tears, the Lord has been protecting me every step of this journey. And whether I live and one day become free of this cancer or die, I know without a doubt that God is good, that he does not change based on my circumstances. For now I can rest in the assurance that the Lord is looking out for me and therefore I can simply strive to live life joyfully for every day that I am given. The other one is an example from history, and it's John Newton. We sang one of his songs just a minute ago. If you've never heard of John Newton before, you've at least you've sung or heard Amazing Grace. He, he wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote this song that we sang just a few minutes ago called I Asked the Lord, which is sort of a painful song to sing in many ways. He was a slave trader is what he did as a profession for a lot of his life in the 1700s. Awful, horrific things he did, and yet Jesus found him and brought him to himself. And John Newton became eventually 
Um, he became a pastor, but he married this girl named Polly who he had known since he was a teenager and had been in love with since he was a teenager. And they had a pretty extraordinary marriage by all accounts and loved each other dearly and loved each other well and were married for about 40 years when Polly died in December of 1790. And he had always just thought in his mind that it wouldn't be that way, that he would die first, but that's not the way it happened. And he insisted on preaching her funeral. He had become a preacher. And um, there was a man there named Thomas Dibden who recorded his witnessing of this funeral later in his life. And this is what he said. He was 15 years old when he went to that funeral. He said, I remember when I was about 15 being taken to hear my uncle, by my uncle to hear Mr. Newton preach his wife's funeral sermon. Newton was then well stricken in years with a tremulous voice. He began at first feebly and leisurely, but as he warmed, his ideas and his words seemed mutually to enlarge. The tears trickled down his cheeks, and his action and expression were at times quite out of the ordinary course of things. But to this day, I have never forgotten the text that he chose. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18 which says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. That tears and joy and rejoicing can exist on the same face of the Christian because of what Jesus has done. That no no matter all of these things are happening that I would not have chosen and that are extremely difficult, yet in this, there is something that is so certain that cannot be taken away that I rejoice even in the midst of it is what Habakkuk says and what Newton says and what Perrin says and hopefully what we can say. How can we say that? You know, all things that you know you're going to suffer through, you prepare for. If you're going to go run a long race, you train for it. And there's a sense in which Peter is telling them this, don't be surprised that trials will come and suffering is going to come. And so I want you to be prepared for it because you hear this and you maybe even hear these examples. And I know what my reaction is like, I don't think that's how I'm going to respond. I don't, that sounds beautiful, but I don't know if that's, that's me. But the, the most extraordinary things have come out of the lips of the most ordinary people who have been found by Jesus. And so let me just give you two things as we end this morning, because I think that preparing for this is a discipline that we need. And the first thing that I would say is just, these are two really simple things. And the first thing is this, remember. Memory is so important in the Bible that if you go back in the Old Testament and you read these accounts of festivals Um, and feasts taking place over and again, the reason that those were there is because we are really forgetful that God is one who delivers us out of bondage and slavery. My favorite one is when the Israelites cross through the Jordan because God stops a river from flowing and they walk through on dry ground. They get to the other side and he says, I want you to take 12 stones and stack them up so that you won't forget this. And I'm like, who could ever forget that? People who were getting ready to encounter some really hard things. That's who. People would forget that who didn't even encounter really hard things because that's just the way we are. 
And so we need to remember. How do we do that? We need to remind ourselves. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves because we are prone to forget all the truths that Peter has already told us in the midst of things that are going to be really difficult for us. The first step in rejoicing is remembering that God is very, very good. And he has been very, very good to you. And he has not treated you in any way that you deserve to be treated, but he has given you the exact opposite of what you deserve. And my second thing is this, repeat that. Repeat it over and over. Doesn't have to, there's things we need to learn in the Christian life. There's one refrain that just needs to keep coming is that we need to keep preaching the good news, the gospel of Jesus to ourselves over and over and over again, that I am his and he is mine, not because of any merit in my own, not because I have been a good little boy, but he found me when I was wicked. He found me when I was his enemy. He has made me his child. What can anything do to really harm me if I belong to him? We have to preach that to one another. The Psalms talk about morning, noon, evening, and I love the last one, night watches, that we remember the goodness of the Lord, even when we wake in the middle of the night, that we repeat that to ourselves. He ends this whole section by simply saying this, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That word entrust is the same word that's used of Jesus as he entrusted himself to his father as he walked towards the cross. Friends, Whatever may come today, maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, maybe 30, 40 years in the future, if your life is united with Christ, if your life is hidden in Christ, the one who suffered for every sin on your behalf, then I promise there is something in the midst of whatever may come that you can rejoice over because he who started this work, even though it takes twists and turns along the way, he is faithful to bring it to completion. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your word that you talk about things that we would rather not talk about. And you remind us of truths that we so easily forget. And Father, as we come to this table, um, we give you thanks for it. And we give you thanks for the reminder and the taste um, that it really is of us, of the glory that is to come. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to not be surprised at our lives, but instead we would stand in awe of the ways in which you have already worked wonders um, in our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.